You're listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Good morning, Northside. How are we? There you are. Hey. I think I reached peak uh, suburban dadhood yesterday. Here's what I did my day. It was a beautiful day. I uh, coached soccer in the morning. Check, right? Um, and then I came home and did about 10 loads of laundry and watched the Masters. Did I, did I nail it yesterday, right? That's like... That's what a suburban dad does, right? So um, I don't watch a lot of golf, but the Masters was on. I was folding underwear. So I'm like, I'll just, I guess I'll just put it on. So I took, I took my phone and I set it there on the table while I'm watching that, um, while I'm folding all of this laundry. And as I'm watching, one thing that I think is really interesting about, about watching golf, there's not a whole lot, but... Um, <laughs> For one, there's no commercials. The Masters especially, there's no commercials. And golf is like the one sport where you'd be like, can we get like the Geico commercial? Like the one, like I could use a break, but it's just like they cut away and they just like film some trees for a little while. And then they come back to the golf and it's like, okay. So it's kind of a chill, you know, day. We had the windows open, I'm watching this. And one thing that also is very interesting is they can't, you know, they can't show every golfer that's playing at the same time. So they're trying to do it live and they can't just have every one of them on the screen. You know, there could be, you know, so many across. So, so what they do is they, they cut from golfer to golfer to golfer. And as, you know, one is, you know, about to make a putt or something like that, they'll go to them. And, and then one of the things that I think helps me watch golf is when you're um, maybe not really paying attention or you're watching something and you can hear the roar of the crowd, not for that guy, because he just made like a five inch putt. Like it's not for that, but it's like for somebody else. And you're like, well, what was that about? Like, why aren't you showing me that? And so eventually they will cut to that and they'll show you the replay. And, um, and so I would be folding the laundry and I would hear like a roar and I'd look to my phone really quick. And it was just like a guy like holding his golf club, like nothing special had happened there. And so then I'd have to like stop you know, fully laundry, just stare at my phone for a little while. I was just like, what was that shot? What was that thing that everybody was cheering about? That everyone, so I'd sit there and they'd go to one golfer. I was like, well, it wasn't that. That was okay, but it wasn't that big of a thing. They go to the next golfer, the next golfer. And eventually you'd see a really spectacular shot out of the bunker. You know, it got really close. I saw a guy, you know, hit an eagle yesterday. Not like hit an eagle. I think that's illegal, um, but it's really good in golf to hit an eagle. So, um, and, and so that, I, this anticipation all through, I hear the crowd and then I'd watch and I'd wait and I'd see. And I can imagine um, what it's like to even be at the masters. And if you're watching one guy do like an ordinary thing and you hear from across the way, like this really loud shout for something, like it's not gonna benefit you to run over there and see it because it's definitely gonna, I mean, golf is slow, but not that slow. Like, like you're not going to see it, but it's this anticipation of watching it of like, what was it? What was the thing that happened? Was it, was, you know, so I was watching that sort of stuff. And I'd imagine in the first century, we're talking about first century Jerusalem, that the people following Jesus that had been following him for a couple years and watching the things that he does, that it was a constant sense of anticipation. I mean, did you, did you see what he did yesterday? 
Uh, did you hear where we're going today? Did you hear um, what's coming up ahead? Did you see him heal that leper? Did you see him, um, you know, raise that dead guy from the grave? Like all of these things that Jesus is doing, he is starting to gain this popularity and there has to be this buzz and this sense of anticipation of like, where are we going to next? What's the next thing? What's the, you know, what's gonna happen today? Because every single day following Jesus was a miracle waiting to happen. And there's this anticipation of like, what could it possibly be around the corner? But that anticipation, as we come towards the Holy Week, which starts today at Palm Sunday, that anticipation would start to fade for some. And that hope and anticipation that Jesus came and what he would provide for these people, whether it was, you know, they came to get another meal from him or they came to, you know, see more miracles or came to hear him speak because he was a great teacher. But some of that stuff begins to, begins to come into jeopardy. Like, like things, are, things are not right. Some people would have an anticipation, but it was a little bit of a nervous energy around Jesus. So if you brought your Bibles this morning, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 21. We're not gonna read a whole lot out of there, but this is the triumphal entry story, Matthew chapter 21. And honestly, if you're reading along with us in the, um, in the year of Bible engagement, Saying Matthew is like a breath of fresh air, right? Like, ah, <laughs> right? It's like the New Testament, we, we made it. Well, we didn't make it. We've got a long ways to go, but we're gonna be in Matthew today. But it is fitting that we're in Matthew because, because we start to see the fulfillment of all of the stuff that's just now going down in the year of Bible engagement. I mean, we're, we're starting Kings, and then we started Kings this week, and we're gonna see um, all of these failed Kings, you know, that, that, that this is gonna, that we're gonna see failure after failure after failure. And here's what we're gonna learn. As we come to this today, this, this, this truth that would sit with the crowd and also sits with us today is that Jesus will fulfill your need for a true king. But he's not going to fulfill all of your expectations. You see, the, the, the big difference there in that sentence is there's needs and there's expectations. There's needs and there's expectations. You know, we're going to learn that Israel longs for a king. We've already seen that happen in our reading. They want a king. They beg God for a king. Give us a king like the other nations around us. And God, as he often does, lets them have what they want. And it's almost like he's gonna teach them a lesson, a really, really long, drawn out lesson, and he gives them a king. And so we're gonna see all of these examples of bad examples of what a king should be. Israel's gonna try and try to get them right, and they're gonna fail. And this is gonna to lead to the splitting of the kingdom of Israel, the northern and southern kingdom. And neither one is really going to do better than the other. They're gonna be like, we've got the righteous king. It's like, well, the bar is set pretty low for kings. And eventually they'll be back to just one kingdom. They'll whittle down to just one kingdom. And this, this idea of what they have longed for and what they asked God for, they'll be taken into captivity and they're left without a king, without a temple, without a home. But there's just this one last hope for them. There's just one last hope and in and out of captivity from different nations around them and for, for you know, hundreds of years, there's this one last hope, this idea of the coming Messiah. A hope that was so great that it even spread to non-Jewish religions. You see, there are other nations around Israel that have their, their own things to worship. 
And most of them had a Messiah prophecy. Most of, you know, a, a lot of the movies that we see, like, the, you know, you, re, you watch Star Wars and there's a Messiah prophecy. There's, there's this, you know, the one that's coming to save everything. There's this longing, this anticipation for someone to come save. Remember when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, what does she say? She says, well, when the Messiah comes, he's gonna sort all this out. They're having like a theological debate, right? Jesus back and forth with Jesus and she has no idea who she's talking to. Well, when the Messiah comes, he's gonna figure all this out, where we worship, which laws we should do, all of the rituals we should do. The Messiah will fix everything. And she's not wrong, but she probably had the Samaritan Messiah in mind. And she probably had something else in mind. She had a different expectation. So when Jesus tells her that, that he's the one he confirms to her for the very first time, he tells anybody that he is the Messiah. This admission just blows her away and it launches Jesus' ministry. So this is spread to the other nations that there is this, there's this longing and anticipation for something. Jesus didn't come to just save Israel. He's not just the Jewish Messiah. Jesus comes to rule over all. And then throughout the gospels, we start to see that what uh, this idea of ruling, this idea of king has different expectations from different people. See, this brings us to our triumphal entry, this moment we've all been waiting for. Jesus comes to claim his throne as king, his great procession, the great parade. And we'll get to the parade and the donkey and the palm branches and all that here in a bit. But actually look at the last verse of this story. Before Jesus enters the temple, verses 10 and 11, it says, so he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar. The whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. Everyone has the same question. Everyone has this exact same, the whole city is buzzing with the same question. Who is this guy that's causing this stir? Who is this guy that, that started his own parade? Who is this guy? Do we need to like be worried about him? Do we need to like pack our bags and be ready to go? Is this the Messiah? Is this Elijah who's come back? And so, did you, everybody's kind of murmuring. Did, what, did you hear what happened on the east side of the city? Stirs up the whole city and everyone's asking the same question. And I think it's the same question for a couple thousand years now that every person who meets Jesus has to ask. Who is this? Who is this man that's, that's causing such a stir? Who is this? I have so many expectations. Is it merely a prophet? Is he just a great moral teacher? Was he a carpenter? Was he a homeless man from Galilee? Is he actually the great Israelite king that's finally gonna fulfill all of this stuff? Is he the Messiah? Is he here to put an end to this oppression that the Israelites have been over? Is he here to restore Jerusalem and the temple and all of that? And see these expectations all piled on top of each other. And if those expectations go unmet, these people will be disappointed. They're gonna be disappointed in the very king that came to save him. See, many in Jerusalem differed in expectations of what King Jesus would bring. And to truly understand what Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on that day, like we have to understand and admit that we too can bring some skewed expectations of his kingdom. And these will lead to disappointment. And so Jesus has actually come to do one thing and we think he's here to do a different thing. And so there's a couple different ways that this crowd and we might even see a little bit of a disappointment in what Jesus has come to do. The first one, you might call it the triumphal mistake. 
We call it the triumphal entry and the palm branches and all that sort of stuff. But some were looking at this going, this is a huge mistake. You know, this past Monday, Kansas Jayhawk fans almost saw a huge mistake. Any Jayhawk fans? There was one in the first service. Okay, there's two more. Okay. That's good. <laughs> That's great. Well, at the national championship game, the pinnacle of the March Madness tournament, some of you, your team had already been knocked out, so you weren't watching it. That's okay. I'm going to give you a recap. All you needed to know was the last nine seconds of the game was terrifying for both teams. And, um, you know, here, I'll set the stage for you. Uh, Kansas is up three points. All they have to do is inbound the ball get fouled, make a couple free throws, sounds easy, right? The one thing that you cannot do if you are a Kansas basketball player in this moment is turn the ball over or step out of bounds. <laughs> and uh, he stepped out of bounds. So they've passed the ball in, Dewan Harris gets the pass, the whistle blows, and I'm actually sitting watching this game. I've got, I've got the volume all the way down, I'm watching on my phone. I do get to watch TV on the TV sometimes, but... A lot of times it's just me and my phone. So um, Bree was asleep. I was like, I'm not watching this game because my team was already out. I'm mad, I'm whatever, but I'm still watching the game. So I set it there on the bedside table and I'm just watching and I couldn't hear the whistle. So I was like, oh, he got fouled. I mean, he tried to get the, rid of the ball before he got fouled or whatever, but, but then they start showing these replays and we start to see that he actually did twice, stepped out of bounds before he got fouled. And, and that was the one thing that he couldn't do. And so I hear this cry all the way from Nixon, Missouri. No, which is Helen Myers. And she actually texted me that too. I mean, she is like devastated. I think I got four texts from her. It was like, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Um, and uh, I think my stream was just a little bit ahead of hers because I was watching it on my phone. I think it was a little bit ahead of hers. So when I saw them win it, I was like, great game, congratulations. She's like, it's not over. Like, she's like really, really upset. She hadn't seen that they had actually pulled it off. It wasn't a mistake. It was almost a colossal mistake, almost cost them the national championship. And for those who've been following Jesus for a couple years in Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem, there was this notion that Jesus really needs to chill out. Like Jesus really needs to hold back a little bit because every time he goes to Jerusalem, he ends up making people mad. This is a huge mistake. And if you want to, you know, if you want to keep this going, if you want to continue growing in popularity and clout, Jerusalem is out of bounds. The one thing that you can't do, Jesus, is march into Jerusalem, let alone throw a parade for yourself and let everybody know that you're coming. We need to keep this on the down low. And Jesus' own disciples may have been the most worried about this. Their expectation of what a Messiah King came to do, uh, he was going to have to be alive for it. All of the things that they, that they thought that Jesus was there for. He needed to be alive. He, he didn't need to get caught up in the politics of the temple and cause a stir in the city. Do you remember Peter's confession to Jesus? Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give him some answers and there's a lot of different answers. And then, they, then Jesus says to his disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up, as he usually does, but this time he actually gets the right answer, and he says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And in a moment of just like brilliance, where Peter's like, Peter, you got the right answer. The disciples are just like, he got the right answer. Like, like he is the Messiah. We believe this. Directly after that, after that, Jesus tells him, he's like, he's like you're right, Peter. 
And it's on that confession, it's on that idea, it's on you, Peter, that I'm going to build the church. And Peter would go on to preach the first gospel message in the book of Acts. But then Jesus does this. Verse 21 in, in Matthew chapter 16, it says, From then on, Jesus began to point out that his, to his disciples that it would be necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. From the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Peter goes from full confession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah to trying to correct Jesus. He knows that in order to keep this thing going, that Jerusalem is going to lead to his death, we can't go to Jerusalem. And what good is a dead Messiah? And the feast of the Passover, um, the population of Jerusalem would swell to more than four to five times its normal size. It's like the world fishing fair of Jerusalem, right? Some of you tried to drive on the south side of town last week. Um, it's, it, was, it was crazy. So the population in the cities around and in Jerusalem would swell. And on a weekend like this, at the particular point in history where Jesus has gained popularity over about three years of ministry, the excitement of what he has come to be it's thought that there could have been close to 2 million people in and around Jerusalem at this time. A few more than came to the fishing fair, I think. Maybe, I was about to say. A parade at this point for Jesus is not flying under the radar. It's a huge mistake to some. And there had to be this sense among his disciples and the people following, we need to lay low. Like we need, to, we need to stick to the rural areas. We need to not go to Jerusalem, especially on the busiest week of all antiquity. Like maybe next week. It's like saying church is gonna be pretty busy on Easter. Maybe we'll just drop in the next week. Like let's not go cause a stir. But the disciples, they weren't the only ones. See, the disciples were worried because they're gonna to start to lose some of their, some of their purpose. Peter decided that, that, that Jesus was the Messiah, but from that point, he wanted to decide how the Messiah would act. There are many others that thought this way too, but Peter had a purpose in following Jesus. He was part of the inner circle. He had clout. He was Peter. And he's worried that that's all now gonna go away. But again, it wasn't just the disciples who thought this is a colossal mistake. This is a triumphal mistake. The Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day they also thought this was a really bad idea. Not just because they hated Jesus, which they definitely did, but they also were scared of the Romans. To, to understand that, you gotta think, what's going on in the first century Jerusalem? Rome was occupying Jerusalem. Like, they had control. But they were okay to let Judaism be practiced. They were all right with that because it kept the peace. If they would say, no, we're not gonna do that, it would cause an uproar, they'd have to come in and deal with that. And so as long as people paid their taxes and kept it peaceful, then Rome didn't get in the way of their so-called religious freedom. You guys can do your thing as long as it doesn't get out of hand. But make no mistake, Rome was still in control, especially during the feast. With the added swell of population, they would send in more guards, they would have more occupation, there would be more people there with eyes watching, and, and I mean literally watching over the city. See, when Herod rebuilt the temple in 40 BC, he did it so that he could gain favor with the Jews. But he baked in a few things that would keep them under control. You see, he would build their temple, they would not revolt, but he also would build these towers and turrets throughout the city so that he could watch what was going on in the Jewish communities. 
He also built these um, all, all different things opposite of the temple of Jerusalem. So one of them was Her at Herod's fortress. He had a place to stay when he was in town. You can see it at the bottom of the map there. Herod's fortress had a, um, you know, had, had, you know, things on the side where you could have guards and all this. This is where any um, governor or Roman official would stay when they were in Jerusalem to keep their distance from the people, but also to be able to watch on them. The most notable fortress that was built was called Antonia's Fortress. I've circled it up there on the map. Named after the Roman ruler Mark Antony, this tower was placed literally connected to the upper, literally connected to the temple. You can see that it's, it's built onto the temple. Herod said, I'll build you your temple, but I'm also gonna keep an eye on you. And so from that, from the, the four towers of that fortress, they could oversee the upper city and the things of the Jerusalem. But most importantly, they could see into the temple, a place where only the Jews were allowed to go. They could see of what's going on into the temple directly down and so that the Romans are perched throughout the city like prison guards just watching, just making sure that things stayed peaceful, looking into their religious services, making sure nobody was causing a stir, as long as we keep it peaceful. And peaceful, I mean, be quiet or we'll crush you, which would actually happen 40 years later after the death of Jesus in 70 AD. The Romans would completely wipe out Jerusalem and the temple because of a revolt. And so you can see why the Pharisees and the religious leaders would, would see this as a huge mistake that a parade on the east side of town is not a great idea. What is this guy doing? Is he, is he trying to get himself killed? Is he trying to get us all killed? They were worried that their reputation as religious leaders, you see, if they knew that Jesus came to forgive sins, that he came to fulfill the law, that he came preaching love and grace, then they could no longer lord over the people as religious leaders, they would be out of a job. So, so they did what most of us do when your way of life is threatened. When our way of life is threatened, we threaten back. We, we, we put up a fight in John chapter 11, we see them discussing the religious leaders, what a huge mistake it was for Jesus to cause this stir. Here's what they said. So the, pre, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened, the Sadducees were saying, what are we going to do? Since this man is doing so many signs, if we let it go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're gonna take my job and my country. They're gonna take it all away. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest this year, said, you know nothing at all. Okay, that's, that's a good start. You are considering that it's, uh, you are not considering that it is to your advantage that one man could die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. This is where the plan starts. We can, we can take care of this. Now the Jewish Passover was near and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple. They're looking around, Romans watching, looking around. They're like, you don't think he'll show up, will he? There's no way he comes this week. That would be a huge mistake. What do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could come and arrest him. Notice that Jesus, that his disciples, that Jesus' disciples and the religious leaders have the same problem with this so-called mistake. 
They're both going to lose positions of authority. They're going to lose their clout. They're going to lose their ability to call the shots. Someone else is coming to sit on the throne. Someone else is going to take over the religious corner of the market. Someone else is going to uh, take away the clout that they had. And this, this is really our biggest disappointments in King Jesus. When we want our interest and we place our interest above his. When our authority has to bow to him, when, when our plans give away to him, when, when we, that's when we put up the biggest fights, right? When I'm no longer in control, I don't like to be in control. I don't want Jesus to take the wheel. I don't even let her take the wheel, right? I want the wheel. So when bowing to King Jesus is going to threaten our way of life and change our plans and mess up our goals, we put up a fight. I was talking with Corey Scott this week, our worship minister, and he said, in our modern minds, we're fine with Jesus being savior, but we struggle with him being king. Maybe that's an American thing because we don't have the whole king, you know, monarchy sort of thing. We don't, we don't really have that. We do have it. It's kind of why we're here. We don't have it anymore. But, but we're fine with savior because savior comes when you're down and out and desperate and you know you can't save yourself, right? I need a savior, Nobody who's feeling good about themselves says, I need a savior. Like, but no, it's king. King is when you rightfully have a position. It's when you have the position, you feel like you have control and you have to give it up. So we're fine with Jesus being savior. But king, Lord, master, Jesus, king, gives, it gives him the, the authority. It gives him your budget. It gives him the first day of your week. It gives him the first 20 minutes of your day. It gives him everything, all the minutes of your day. It gives him the final say in your career choice, your lunch conversation, the grudge that you hold, sin that you hide. All of that bows to a new king. And we're rarely comfortable with giving up a throne. And so this is, this is a mistake. We learn from the text today that, that from the events that will follow this Holy Week that Jesus didn't make a triumphal mistake. He actually fulfills a prophecy, one of 300 plus prophecies that he fulfills about the Messiah. His timing was not off. The Passover feast is the perfect time for Jesus who embodies the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It was no mistake. It was the Messianic King coming at the right time. The text even tells us he came to fulfill a prophecy. So one more way this crowd might have been disappointed with, with Jesus as king. It wasn't a mistake, but for them, it should have been more. So maybe they didn't call it the triumphal entry or the triumphal mistake, but they call it the triumphal letdown. I really expected more from this guy. I expected so more. I'm sure, I'm sure you've all been let down at some point. Maybe today. I hope not. Maybe, <laughs> that got weird. Um, maybe it was a movie you watched. It didn't turn out. The way it didn't deliver, the politician you voted for that didn't deliver, the pizza that you, you ordered that did deliver, but it came like upside down without all the toppings you ordered. Like maybe you felt that way, that disappointment. I was so excited with anticipation. I knew what was coming and it just didn't live up to the hype. There are many in the crowd on Palm Sunday that would feel this way. They came with these expectations and they left wildly underwhelmed. His disciples, once again, they're having to change their expectations. If you, if you jump back a chapter in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 21, we see uh, while, Jesus, well, while going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside and privately said to them on the way, see, we are going to Jerusalem 
He's making like no bones about it. He is telling them what is going to happen. The son of man will be handed over the chief priest and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. There's the plan. That's where we're headed. Look what happens right after that. It says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her two sons. Mama's getting involved. She knelt down to ask him for something. I love this. I love this line. What do you want? <laughs> I would have rolled my eyes. I'm sure Jesus didn't because he's Jesus, but I would have been like, what? Like, what, what do you want? And, and he, she says this, promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Now, again, I would have rolled my eyes and I probably would have said something like, did you not just hear what I said? Like, do you hear where we're going? Do you hear what's going to happen? There is no right and left. This kingdom is not gonna look anything like you want. Once again, we see the expectations of, of James, uh, on Jesus. James and John should be ashamed, not just because they brought their mom, but that is kind of shameful, but because they asked this question and he's been teaching them about the kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is like this and they missed it all. They should know better. But as the heat starts to increase around Jesus, we see um, that people start to jockey for position. If there's a kingdom, if there's a king, there's gotta be a right hand and a left hand. There's gotta be a place to sit. And so they're still thinking in worldly terms about this kingdom. There's gotta be a throne and next to the throne, he's gotta have you know, servants and I wanna be at the top of those servants or whatever. And Jesus goes on to tell him, no, this is not how it's gonna work. This is not how it's gonna work. The first will be last and the last will be first. This is different. This is upside down. I'm sorry if that disappoints you, but your expectations are off. With hundreds of years of stories about the coming Messiah, the people of Israel longed for a king to come and overthrow whoever the oppressor was in that century, to kick them off of their high horses, to knock them out of their towers, to reestablish the great nation of Israel. People were already ready to revolt. They were ready for Jesus to come in and take over and smack down and it's showtime and let's go. And you see Jesus go, all right, here's the battle plan. Here's the big entry plan. You know, I think of, of, of watching wrestling when I was a little kid and they'd have like the, the entry songs and the glass breaking, guys running down and that sort of stuff. And everybody's like, all right, Jesus, let's go. It's time to go, it's go time. The music has started, it's time to go into Jerusalem. It's time for a revolt. And Jesus says, I want you to go into town ahead of time and I want you to give me a donkey. <laughs> and not only, not just any donkey, but a donkey that's never been ridden, that's a, that's a baby donkey. <laughs> and I want you to bring its mom with, James, John, you know about bringing your mom with you. So go get the mommy donkey and bring it with the other donkey, okay? And I want you to bring it here. And I know that the text says that they like immediately obeyed, that it was like, it was like they did as Jesus said but there's a walk there that they've gotta be saying to each other like, what are we doing? Like, first off, are we stealing this horse? Like, are, is this legal? I'm not really sure. Like, so they're going in. I mean, there's gotta be a conversation. All right, this is his big moment and he wants to ride a donkey. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll give him that. What's, what, what's the other plans that he have? And they're like, he didn't tell us anything else. We've, we're supposed to get the donkey. I think he's gonna ride it. This, he's gonna ride this donkey without a saddle? <laughs> I think the saddle was their least of their concerns, but they're like, no, we'll just like throw our coats on it and he can sit on it. It'll be fine. Cause the mom's there with it, right? It'll be fine. 
Just think of all the things going through their minds. No saddle, we use our coats. Uh, do we have a parade route? Did we get a permit from the Romans? Like, can we actually do this? Have they shut down the streets? Do we, have we invited anybody of clout? Is anybody gonna show up to this thing? And, and also, like, if you think about where they came in the city, they come in on the east gate, and the idea is the very next thing Jesus does is go into the temple. The east gate is the temple. Like, it's not a very long parade. It's just like, right in the gate, and you're at the temple. So it's like, is this even like, is this even going to work? It's not a long parade. We don't have any. I'm just, I mean, I think we're just walking in. People are going to follow us, <laughs> like, have you ever been a part of an accidental parade? I have. I've, I've ended up in a car show parade where my Subaru Outback was like in the middle of the parade. <laughs> and hey, <laughs> it's a classic. Yeah, no. Um, and so uh, I just like, we're just gonna walk in. So let's take stock of this. This Messiah King, in his own words, has a kingdom that we can't see where there's no throne that we can sit on right or left or anything like that. He's got an army that doesn't fight, a temple that doesn't exist. He's, you know, he's, he's telling us like, this isn't his temple. He doesn't have a temple or a palace or a castle. Actually, he's homeless. He's riding on a borrowed donkey. He's sitting on someone else's dirty laundry, parading down unkept streets with houseplants and coats. Like this is the Messiah. This is your Messiah. Imagine even the Romans looking down going, oh, there's something, eh, whatever. Like, it's not even that big of a deal. It's like, we see it as triumphant and it probably was quite a few people, but in a city the size of Jerusalem, it was probably just a blip in the radar for the Romans. We're like, because if it had been bigger, they would have put an end to it. So we don't have to worry about that. But to many, it was a, a complete letdown. What's so triumphal about this? Like, what's so great? Imagine being in the city and you hear the murmurings that the Messiah has come to the East Gate and you gather your family and you rush out there and you see someone riding on a donkey and you see makeshift, they don't, even have, they don't even have flags on poles. They've had to cut palm branches as they come into the city and start waving them like, a, like, like, like that's, their, that's their banners. They're using their own coats to cover, to cover the roads. They're using these palm branches. All of this just seems very makeshift. It doesn't seem well planned out. It seems like Jesus needs a talent made, you know, manager or something. Like he needs something to get more clout. This is a complete letdown. And so if you're expecting a bloodbath of Roman soldiers, you're expecting a, a king with servants and a crown and a robe, and this is what you found, this is the letdown. And I feel like we can do this too. Sometimes I feel like we're... We're just not impressed with the Jesus that we find in Scripture. You know, Jesus wasn't bold enough. That he wasn't, he's not bold enough for us. Like, like the whole love and hippie vibe sort of a thing, that's great, but I really love it when he pulls out the whip and turns over the tables. You're like, I need revelation, Jesus, right? Have you ever felt that way? It's just a little too, a little too soft for me. I need the warrior Jesus, the warrior king that's gonna ride on that horse. There was, a, there was an attempt when I was in college, I know it's happened over you know, a bunch of times over church history, but there's been an, a, an attempt to kind of beef up the image of Jesus, you know? Like to give him, do you guys remember those uh, Lord's Gym shirts? I haven't seen one in a really long time, but it was like Jesus doing like bench presses of the devil or something, and he's like massive arms and crown of thorns. Um, but he's got all that, it's like, you know, and I think it said on the back, bench press this, which I was like, I think I had one of those shirts. Um, but uh, but that's, that's kind of what we, what we long for, right? When we think of Jesus and we see some of the depictions of him, he's like, ah, oh, I don't, 
I don't know if I can get with this. Like I want, I want stone cold Jesus, right? Like I want the Jesus that's gonna come and cause some trouble. But we, don't, we don't see that in the scripture, you know? Um, we get this idea that Jesus is too weak to follow. Maybe he just needed some, some PR help. Like today we would have put him like in the octagon, right? Like we would have put him like prime time. Like let's show how fierce Jesus is. Let's show how, you know, how, how big he is. We're trying to pump him up. I remember this quote from a, from a pastor when I was in college. I, I'd heard this and um, it's not that quote. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> um, but he said this, it was at a men's conference and he was trying to pump people up. He was like, you know, if you think Jesus is weak, here's, here's what Jesus really is. And he said, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, which is one way to read Revelation, I guess. But uh, a sword in his hand and the commitment to make someone bleed. This fierce king. That is a guy I can worship. This is still his quote, not me. I, can, I, can't, I cannot worship a hippie, diaper, halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. And I can't help but think that sometimes we're let down by the Jesus we find in Scripture. That we want revelation Jesus instead of gospel Jesus. That we want uh, fire and brimstone Jesus instead of beatitude Jesus. And how many of Jesus' followers were ready to fight? They were ready to go. We know Peter was. Chopped the guy's ear off. <laughs> he was ready to go. He was like, all right, the triumphal entry wasn't it. But like, here comes the Romans. This has got to be it, Jesus. Time for your magic. Time for your moment. And again, Peter takes things into his own hands. So how many in this crowd, how many of us here today, run out of patience with Jesus' gentle plan? His disciples seemed in Jerusalem... That, that, that it wasn't enough. His disciples said there was enough people in Jerusalem around this that, that less than a week later, we're gonna see the same crowd that's chanting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's coming riding on a donkey. He's fulfilling all of our expectations and needs. Here comes the Messiah. Those, those crowds would start to then chant, ah, he didn't really do what he said he was gonna do. Look at this guy. Ah, just crucify him. Release someone who actually can cause a stir. Do you remember why Barabbas was in prison? For insurrection. He was in, in prison because the Romans put him there because he tried to revolt against the Roman government. And they're like, give us that guy. Just go ahead and get rid of this Jesus. Look, he's not even defending himself when, he, when he's yelled at or when he's spit on or when he's hit. He's not the king I expected. He'll be dead by morning. I think many who walked away from Jesus in that city, many who walked with him in that city, walked away let down. Bethany Allen from Bridgetown Church says it this way, that expectations that have predetermined, a predetermined outcome on our end will always lead in a disillusioned faith. When we come in to, with our expectations and anticipation of what Jesus could be, and it doesn't line up with who he actually is, we don't go back and go, well, maybe I had that wrong. Maybe I was wrong from the start. We don't say that. No, we say, he has let me down. He has failed me. Now my faith is in question. And so I wonder if it describes you this morning. Do you have a disillusioned faith? Have you, have you lost faith in this king? Do you feel like you're losing your faith, deconstructing your faith, reconsidering your faith, finding faith for the first time, searching because you're like, I don't know who this Jesus was because I thought he was this. I was told he was this. I expected him to be this and he's not. It's not working out. 
And you think, maybe I just walk away from the whole thing. But even if, even if you do have, you feel like your expectations are good and like your relationship with God is good, let's ask ourselves this question. Are you searching for Jesus? Are you searching for Jesus or are you searching for the expectations you have that he never promised to fulfill? Are you searching for a Jesus that we can't find in the scriptures? Are you searching for a Jesus that can't be found? Be disillusioned. You know, back in the 90s, and I have to clarify, that's the 1990s. Some kids are like, like, in ancient what? No. In the 90s, there was this thing that I heard about from my brother called the East Coast, West Coast Rap War, right? And I know, I am not qualified to talk about this. Um, but it was there. And the only, again, the only reason I knew about it, my brother had a bunch of CDs and, um, and it was like one of those big like encyclopedia, you know, things where you're just flipping through CDs after CDs after CDs. And, uh, and he, you know, he had tons of them. And he told me, he was like, dude, there's this, there's this battle, okay? You just gotta know about this fight. It's the East Coast versus the West Coast rappers. And I was like, where are those things? <laughs> like, coast, what's a coast? I grew up in the middle of Missouri, okay? So like the coast is like the Mississippi River and the Missouri River, <laughs> like those are my coasts. I think there's a buffalo down here or something. Like, like I, didn't, I didn't have coasts. We're like, okay, so they're fighting. And my brother was like, no, dude, you have to pick a side. <laughs> and I'm like, no, like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like these CDs, like there's sides, like which side are you on? And I was like, I liked rap music because it made the trunk of my car rattle. That's the only, that's the only thing I knew about, about it. It was like, is this one louder? Which is this? But he was convinced I needed to, in the middle of Missouri, pick a side in the rap wars that are going on, on the East Coast and the West Coast, a place I still have never been to. How do I transition here? Because some of you are judging me hardcore. Some of you are uh, like, what? Um, I, I, I'm not, <laughs> everybody wants to know what side. So come and see me after decision point. You all need Jesus. Um, I stumbled across something this week when I was studying the triumphal entry that I'd never even considered, I'd never thought about. Okay? I, was, I was reading through some stuff of what would have been happening in first century um, Jerusalem at that time. And I stumbled across this fact that I've just, it, for me, I was like, I can't believe that, that Jesus's triumphal entry would not have been the only parade happening in Jerusalem, maybe that day, but for sure that week. Now, Jesus comes in on the east side of the city. You can see right there by the temple, there's a lot of gates over there. So, but it was, it was likely this gate just because of the proximity to the temple and where he came from, coming down from the Mount of Olives from Bethpage and the cities that he was staying. And we see that as he goes into the city and out of the city and that sort of stuff, he's, he wouldn't walk all the way around. So he comes in on the east side. But at some time in that week, on the west side of the city, another processional would have been taking place. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Jerusalem. He didn't live in Jerusalem, but he was the, the governor of that whole area of Galilee, of Judea. Um, he, would, he, he wasn't living in there, but he would have lived closer to the coast in Caesarea, but he would have made his way to the holy city for the Passover feast. Now, why would he be there? Two million people, he wants to be there. Like, there's, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of religious, I mean, just think about what they're celebrating at the Passover. 
You know, think about what the Jewish people are celebrating. They're celebrating their liberation from Egypt. They're celebrating their release from bondage. They're celebrating their, uh, their declaration of independence. It's their July 4th and they're gonna celebrate that. You might wanna have some Roman guards on hand. And it's known through history that, that the governor would be there. And so coming from the sea, putting him near his quarters, he would have come in on this west side of the gate. His parade would not have been under the radar. It would have been magnificent. One author describes it like this. Imagine the imperial's procession arriving in the city. A visual of imperial power. Calvary on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles. Not the golf ones, but the golden ones. Sun glinting off of the metal and gold. Sounds, the marching feet, the creaking of leather, the clinking of bridles, the, the beating of drums, a swirling of dust, the eyes of the silent onlookers. Some curious, some in awe, and some resentful. You know, I've thought about the triumphal entry. I've been, you know, going to church for like 30 years now and celebrating Palm Sunday and we got the little palm leaves and what's going on there. And, and never before had it occurred to me that what Jesus is doing on the east side of the city is not a mistake, when it's not an, a, a letdown, it's not underwhelming, but what's happening on the east side of the city of Jerusalem that day is, is none of those things, but it's actually a protest against this idea that a king, that a Lord, that a master will rule over his people. It's a protest, a statement of the life of Jesus, a put your mule where your mouth is moment, a, a beatitudes moment personified for Jesus. The prophecies have been fulfilled. Here comes your king who refused to ride above his people and keep them at the edge of a sword, but has chosen to come down to them. It's a battle of power for sure. You see, with Pilate, we see hubris, with Jesus, we see humility. With, with Pilate, we see this gravitas. Jesus, we see coming in grace. With Pilate, we see might. Jesus, we see mercy. And on the west side of the city, we see tyranny marching in to keep people at bay. On the east side, we see tenderness of Jesus welcome everyone. From sinners, to tax collectors, to prostitutes, to even Pharisees, to even Romans. So much of our expectations of Jesus take the form of the parade happening on the west side of the city. We want the political king who looks down on our foes. We want, we want the polished self-righteousness that, that makes us right and everyone else wrong. We want the wealth of an earthly kingdom. We want the fame of an earthly king. We want just what Israel wanted. We want to have dominance, to know that God has blessed us we want all of these things and we have all of these expectations. And if that is the king that we're looking for, we might be standing at the wrong gate. We might be waving the wrong banner. But if you're looking for a friend of sinners, if you're looking for someone who doesn't come with pomp and circumstance, but comes to palm leaves riding on a donkey, that's the king looking for a sacrificial lamb. You're looking for a kingdom that rises above all of the posturing and pandering, but someone who doesn't submit to your expectations, but fully fulfills his duty as the Messiah King. 
Are you looking for someone who can sit on the throne of your life because you've lost complete control of it? The crowds would say, see, your king is coming. Gentle, as the prophecy said, mounted on a donkey. It may feel like a mistake that he's given it all up. How could you? It may feel like a letdown that he could be so much more, but we know that he's everything that the Messiah King is promised to be. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you that in your great mercy, that you have not chosen to rule over us, keep us at the end of a sword, to oppress us, to punish us. But God, you have offered a sacrifice. You have offered this lowly king who will lower himself as a servant and be raised above all as the Messiah King. God, will we put our trust in him? Will we put our expectations down and pick up a humble palm leaf and praise the Messiah who has come to take away our sins? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd like to have a conversation this morning of what it looks like to put Jesus on the throne of your life, I would love to chat with you, to talk with you right outside these doors. As we're singing at the end here or as service ends, I'll just be right out there. You can just come have a, you know, have a talk over there. Um, but this is also the point in our service where we, um, we choose to give. We have an opportunity to give, and there's a bunch of different ways you can give. You can see them there on the screen. You can do that online or the boxes around the room. There's one need that I would like to draw your attention to this morning. Um, And I don't know if you've noticed, but we're talking a lot about camp because it's starting to get warmer. We're excited about kids going to camp. And, and, and we've, we've had an increased number of people letting us know that the camp's just going to be hard for them to afford this year. Now, things are tough, and they're starting to cut some things out of the budget, and it would be a travesty if camp becomes one of those budget items that has to go away. And so we're asking this morning, our Northside family, if you feel so blessed to give to someone who, who, who wants to go to camp, who, who, who would love to be there this summer but just can't afford it, we're going to ask that um, if you're writing a check, you would write camp scholarship donation on the memo line there. Or if you're giving online, you'll see a drop-down menu where you can give to the Camp Scholarship Fund so that we can have more kids go to camp this summer and they can learn more about this King Jesus. So let's all stand together as we, as we give, as we sing, as we praise our Jesus on this start of the Holy Week. Let's sing together. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.